0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode with an incredible guest today who's an author, and I'm excited to share her with you. But before we get to her... I want to tell you about my own book, which recently came out in October. It's called Shift Your Mind. Uh, If this is your first time here listening to this podcast, welcome. Certainly, our guest today has written some incredible books, and people like her have inspired me to put pen to paper and put some of my ideas out there. So the book Shift Your Mind is now available anywhere books are sold. If you head over to Amazon, you can buy it there. And really excited with how it turned out and appreciate all of you that have reached out to support the book, to support the podcast, and just want to let you know how grateful I am and to thank you for the continued support. If you like the book or you like the podcast, head over to iTunes or Amazon and write us a review. Obviously, Amazon for the book, iTunes for the podcast. Those reviews really do help us expand our reach and help more people find us or find myself. So uh, appreciate the support. And now to today's guest. Ashley Merriman is one of those people who I've had on my list. I keep a list of people that I'd love to learn from. And that's really why I fired up this podcast so I could learn from people like Ashley. I'm a fan of her work. So she wrote two best selling books one is called Top Dog, and the other is called Nurture Shock. Nurture Shock really introduced Carol Dweck's work of growth mindset. And we're going to talk about how that came to be and how she discovered. Dweck's work around growth mindset, which has now become a staple in sports psychology, educational psychology. Uh, I do executive coaching. The word the term growth mindset shows up everywhere you go and everywhere I go. And, and Dweck's book, Mindset, is also a best-selling book. Uh, also when Top Dog, we're going to get into some of the things that she found that led to elite performance. And it's something that I obviously study at great length and am pretty obsessed with. So Top Dog and Nurture Shock recommend both those books. They're New York Times bestsellers um, and and highly, highly recommend them. In addition to being an author, she also does keynote speeches. Uh, She's done consulting in boardrooms. She's appeared on more than 200 venues, uh, working with global leaders such as Staples, Fox, uh, Janssen Pharmaceuticals. It goes on and on. Uh, I've seen her at the Aspen Institute uh, as well. So she is somebody who is definitely on it when it comes to education, when it comes to the science of performing and and high performance and Ashley is someone who I just love chatting with. I felt like I could learn from her all day. I also challenge her. I I think she's pretty contrarian. She's willing to challenge the status quo, and she does so with science in mind. So we go at it a little bit in this conversation, but for the most part, I just wanted to listen and learn from her. She's a wealth of knowledge. She really knows her stuff, and I think most importantly, she really loves looking at research and understanding what the research says about how we can develop our talent, how we can develop our children, and how we can all strive to fulfill our potential. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Ashley Merriman. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to chat with you. We've chatted before, and I've obviously read your work and followed you for a while now. So this is exciting for me. Actually, where I'd love to start is over your left shoulder. No one's going to see this, but you and I, because we're just going to share the audio.
1: You <laughs> are right there? The yeah, I'm
0: looking at the Washington Nationals banner, and um, we're both based in Washington, D.C., but I don't think you're from Washington originally. Why Why become a Nats fan? Tell me about your, your fandom huge, for the Nats.
1: I'm a huge Nats fan, um, but I also love the Padres. And I also have some connections to the Giants and the Jays, so <laughs> I keep collecting teams. But <clears throat> yeah, I'm a huge Nats fan. I had lived in DC a long time ago, and when I moved back to Los Angeles, I um, we were they were still talking about a Nats team. There wasn't one yet, but reading about them you know, kind of you know gave me a connection to DC. And I read the post online every day, and I try and find paper copies and I just you know fell in love with the idea of the senators coming back after all this time they didn't end up being the senators I mean that's a, a farm team but so I've just I've yeah I was one of the 50 Nats fans in Los Angeles if you went to a Nats game or or watched a Nats game in LA I was one of the red dots that you could count uh, yeah so I'm well, a huge Nats fan went to a couple of the series games and uh, yeah so that's a World Series banner behind me. I I just
0: got it last week. I'm so excited. We were both in the stadium at the same time without knowing it, which is one of the beauties of Mm -hmm. sport. It's just, uh, you know, it's one of the things I missed during this time right now is just the gatherings, the communal opportunities to be side by side with strangers and just Mm -hmm. share something. And sports can be silly for a lot of people. And I understand that, but for me, it's, it's, it's community and it's the opportunity to celebrate, with people that you normally might not, you might be in a bubble and, and might be in your own bubble and not be arm in arm with. And so I look forward to the day where maybe we can go to a Nats game together, you know, crack some peanuts. Uh, I'm not a big hot dog guy, but maybe get some chili or, or a burger or something like that. And, and, uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll enjoy that together. So here's to that, to that day. Yeah, uh, f-
1: well, you know, um, we actually, we wrote about this a little bit in Top Talk. So I, you, you've hit something that's really important to me. Go for it. Uh, which, and, and, and obviously timely. Uh, last weekend, actually one of my closest friends, it was her birthday. And normally we would take each other to a baseball game for our birthdays. So I called and said, we're going to a game because the Nats were home. In, and there's a nearby restaurant, a, a hotel that has a rooftop restaurant bar. And we suited up like we were sitting in the stadium, had our jerseys on, ball caps, everything. And I was so excited on the way there. I'm like, oh my God, I feel like I'm going to a game. And we sat on sat on the rooftop and we could only see about half of the field, but I could hear the organ play, nah, 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 nah. and I would scream, charge, and everyone in the bar would look at me like I was a freak. Um But it was, it was so great to get to do that. And one of the times when I burst out with a Nats chair, um, a guy behind me was like, ah, you just made my day. And it turned out he was a Nats fan who lives in Cleveland and they'd driven to DC and were living and were staying in the hotel for a weekend and just going upstairs to the roof to watch all the games. And I was the first person who was silly enough to actually make the cheers, and he was just so excited. And then we started talking, we found out we had mutual friends and acquaintances. (laughs) It was completely crazy. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of research we wrote about this in Top Dog that, you know, people think that, you know, Greek, you know, they think of Greek democracy, and they think about the Olympics. What they don't realize is that the Olympics probably preceded democracy. Because training and effort in Olympic contexts actually proved that individuals could do something and learn and build skills to make a difference. And before that, it had been that sort of more royal, theistic, you know, certain people are ordained by God to be special and the rest of us are also Rams. And they proved that wasn't. And once they started saying that in sports, people started saying, well, what other contexts if we learned, if we thought, could we change things? So sports can, just like you said, on a one-to-one basis, on a cultural movement, sort of recast what we think about and in interactions and have us meet people from different social strata or different experiences we never would, but this sort of common experience. Um, so I'm, as as I've admitted to you previously and everyone who knows me, I'm not an athlete. Um, but I really am, you know, sports are very important to me. And, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, why you can barely walk across the floor without falling on your face. And that's completely true. Uh, but it, it, it's, you know, that seeing any context where people are motivated for a pursuit of excellence. I, 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 I am I'm not, you know, it could be scientists, it could be athletes, it could be artists, but those people who are really committed to improving themselves and and pu- and putting themselves out there, I, I love that in any context. So.
0: But Ashley, what do you love about it? Why, why do you why do you care so deeply about excellence and competing and greatness or whatever the word might be?
1: well, it's, I don't care so much about the winning part. Um, in fact, it was funny when we titled our book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. People were like, oh, can, can you get rid of that losing part? Because nobody wants to talk about losing. We all talk about winning. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but the more you compete, the more you're going to lose because the competition gets stiffer along the way, right? But I think it's more just that, you know, from what the science has taught me and just sort of conceptually in my life experiences, but a lot of it. You know, it really is the science that competition isn't about tearing people down. It's about realizing how far you can go and changing your perspective of what's possible. Right. So, as, you know, especially right now with COVID, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, home workouts, you know, are you working out? you know, how many of us have written concertos and, and masterpieces and learned how to play the piano and blah, 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 blah in our little apartments. And even if you're one of those amazing people who have actually done that as opposed to been like me who kicked themselves for not doing it, as long as you're in your apartment or your house by yourself doing it, you're not actually going to understand how well you're doing. It's not until you find a reference point. Now maybe it's through a zoom or, you know, go outside on your balcony and serenade the neighborhood or something like that. But until you start seeing what other people are doing, It's hard to sort of continually have that reference point. You need external sources of feedback to know where you're going. And why I like elite competition and good competition is because when you see those external reference points, they inspire you to do more. As opposed to I want to tear that guy down. Um, And obviously, if if you're, you know, if you feel completely outclassed, that's not productive either because then you're just going to give up. But but that. Oh, is that what you can do? Ooh, I want to do that. Um, I think it's really exciting. So anytime you can sort of systematize that or you have a group of people who are collectively trying to do that in a, um I, I find that very exciting.
0: There's so much that you just said, and there's so many threads I could go down. so I'm just gonna <laughs> i'm gonna I'm gonna share some thoughts and then you pick the thread that you want to pull on. Okay. And so one, the Greeks, I think the Greek said strength was mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, which is a really cool framework because so often we just think of strengths uh, as, as, as physical. We think of just physical strength, but there's also mental, emotional, spiritual. The second thought I had as I was hearing you talking about flow state, and the value of competition for flow state. And you know, to get to a flow state, you want to be competing against someone a little bit better than you, but if they're way better than you, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to get to that state. And if they are way worse than you, it's hard to get to that state. So that was something that came up for me. And then I thought about performance and competition and how they go hand in hand. And so mm-hmm. if you're going to be a performer, what separates a performance, it involves some sort of judgment. Some sort of evaluation. And as I hear you talk about competition, it, it, it's linked with performance. Um, and, and so that was also coming up for me as I was hearing you talk. So I don't know if any of those threads grab you in a way um, mm-hmm. and interest you, but feel free to just pull on any of those levers.
1: Um, well, I'll start with the second one and then we'll see where it goes from there. But in terms of flow, actually, it's not that I. Um, poo-poo flow but i kind of do i <laughs> mean me i more. mean it, it's not that i don't you know i, I mean uh miha sent Mihai's work is you know important and has given so much inspiration and thought to other people and in work but i also know olympic coaches who they get every all the olympians before in a room together before they're about to you know start the games in normal times pretend this is normal times in normal times and one of these things they say is yeah you all have fl- heard of flow yeah love flow yeah and you know sometimes they say in the groove or whatever you know thing they're, but it, it's, zone. right you know we don't want to use the scientific jargon <laughs> in the zone or yeah, yeah 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 it's like okay and how many of you think that you're gonna get to have your best in the zone performance when you got a billion people watching. You are not going to have flow on your Olympic competition, sorry. And if that's what you're looking for, you are gonna have a really rough ride the next two weeks. What we need to do is say, yeah, we need to enjoy that. And and if we can pursue that, but your greats do well in spite of themselves. And there's actually a whole scientific literature looking at the comparisons between the novice and the elite. And the novice actually, you know, they succeed in if there's, you know, obstacles that have come in their path because they surmounted them or they went around them or despite everything, they prevailed. Your true elite actually uses those obstacles to their advantage. They actually changed their strategy to either, you know, capitalize on it or, you know, like the the Olympic skater who in the middle realizing they haven't gotten enough style points will suddenly add a triple axel in the last 12 seconds when they shouldn't have had anything else, right? So that kind of recognizing in the moment what they need to do differently because they're behind or they're not succeeding. So I, I think that flow is nice. You know i mean we do describe it as an ideal state so i can't knock it um and certainly i've had experiences where you know you sit down and then you look at the clock and it's 10 hours later and you're like what the heck happened there but it's not something i think we can focus on so much um there there is some you know there's some people out there who are sort of trying to you know can you teach flow can you develop flow I, but I think that, you know, there's still a cap on that. And you still have to figure out how to how to perform when you don't want to.
0: Ashley, yeah, so I love what you're talking about. The, there's a legendary sports psychologist named Ken Revisa. And he used to always say, what are you going to do when the shit hits the fan? Because the shit is gonna hit the fan. And that's what you actually have to train and be ready exactly. for. Exactly. Uh, so I love that. You were talking about the triple axel and the figure skater. And when I heard there was agility, or the ability to adjust or adapt, adaptability.
1: Adaptability, yeah.
0: And I think about grit and how popular grits come, become mainly from the work of Angela Duckworth and and this idea of passion and perseverance toward long-term goals. I think Susan David started talking about emotional agility and this capacity to be more flexible. And as I'm thinking about that triple axel, or I'm thinking about how you're thinking about elites, it's this ability to be agile, without a loss of sense of belief, almost. Like, yeah, I believe I can do that triple ax. So it's not like they're just throwing something out there that they haven't tried before, but it, there's this agility piece. And you mentioned normal times versus what we're in right now. <laughs>
1: whatever whatever this is, yeah.
0: And I think a lot of people are struggling with this for a lot of reasons, including mm-hmm. myself, but especially the gritty performers because they were always like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna dominate this, I'm gonna win this. And some things are actually not meant to be won. On, they're just meant to learn from or, or be agile and, and find a way mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on agility and anything that you've noticed uh, from the literature from the research or the science because agility is something that I'm noticing my clients who are agile right now are finding new ways and in innovating and I find the ones that are just focused on grit are really struggling because they're coming against barriers that are out of their control and they, they aren't finding another way to adjust
1: um, yeah well Hmm. So many thoughts. (laughs) Let me start with, uh, so I usually think in terms of adaptability instead of agility, and I know that those are probably, you know, they're definitely cousins, if not synonyms, depending on what you're defining, but I I like thinking about adaptability because it really is focusing on the adapt part, right? And agility to me is sort of being flexible, which is cool, but Adaptability is really about if oh, situations have changed, what do I now need to do to change them? And focusing on uh, you know the the army um, there's some Army research labs that have done quite a bit of studying on adaptability. And you know one of the first things you have to do in adaptability is recognize that something recognize a situation and then recognize that it has changed, and that your strategy is no longer going to be successful. So you need to adapt to your change. And then what are you going to do and then execute that change? So that's a lot of different steps. And you can think about it and adaptability applies in uh, cultural interactions, education. Anytime you learn something new, a new skill, you've got to be adaptable, right? Like, oh my gosh, I've never done this kind of math before. I've never done this particular physical exercise before. Um, So any kind of education, Circumstance requires some degree of adaptability, but also can teach it, right? The learning process helps teach you how to be adaptable because it's saying what are the new pieces of information that you need to take in to show this and, and to explore it. Um, interpersonal relationships need adaptability, right? I need to be sensitive to someone else's response. To know if what I'm saying is making sense, is confusing them, is it upsetting them, is it upsetting me? Um, so it has a wide range of applications, which I think are really interesting and important. And and if we focus there on the sort of element, in even that you know people who are you know want to be change agents have to be adaptable, and they have to understand how much of it they need to see how much they need to change. And it's not just change for change's sake, right? There, There's reasons for it. And what are you doing? And how are you going to implement it, which I think are all really interesting and important. And, the, um, and in terms of what you were talking about with grit, you know, a, a lot of the research right now is showing that grit isn't that much different than conscientiousness. And there isn't really that much support for grit development as a thing um, and I think that it's important to focus on things like adaptability and even the earlier research about grit you was, know, well sometimes you gotta cut a loss sometimes you have to be adaptable and there is a tension I think that if, you know like I could tell you I, I took Angela Duckworth's um, grit scale it's available online And I think my results were, I was, um, I think I was grittier than like 78% of the population. So, you know, you can do the half glass, half empty, full thing, right? And you can say, oh yeah, I didn't say, okay, well, how's that work? Well, um, I'm not very gritty, apparently. I'm certainly not in the lead gritty. Uh, and yeah, I would own that. I my closet is littered with half crocheted bags of yarn that were supposedly scarves that I never finished. Uh, I mentioned the not learning how to do piano. I've got an unplayed ukulele in the next room. Um, lots of habits and activities that I was like, "Yeah, that's really great," and I dropped it for two weeks. And so clearly, I'm a not very good dilettante. Um. okay, yeah, that's probably a pretty fair assessment. Uh, but on the other hand, I've been writing since I was 12. And I've never stopped writing. And I've had other things in my life that were important, but I developed those over years of time. And as a writer, you kind of and sometimes need to pick up a particular line of research or an idea and work at it a while, and then go, okay, I'm done with that because I either finished that project or I realized that project didn't go anywhere. So, you know, so then you're like, okay, well, maybe the ability to put down that crochet yarn was good because I realized that was not a good use of my time. I thought it was developing something, it was not. Let me try something else that's more productive. So I think if we're focusing on grit, especially as sort of this centerpiece, rather than growth, I would like to, I'd like us to focus on growth, because I can be gritty on a lot of things that are not necessarily productive. Um, so I feel like that's, and then to me, adaptability is part of sort of an intrinsic element of growth, because it's challenging you to say, is what you're doing now going to work tomorrow or down the road?
0: It's interesting as it relates to Duckworth because she's been criticized for the grit scale. Um, I also think pretty much every personality assessment deserves a lens of criticism because when I when I take them and I actually created my own, so you know I'm in the same boat. <laughs> but, but like You're it depends. <laughs> when I'm filling out an assessment, I always am saying it depends, right? Like, <laughs> okay. am I going to stick with it? Well, if I know I have a great idea in a book, ah, yeah, hell yeah, I'm going to put my head down until it's done. But there's another book that I started and as you said, I might be write a chapter or two and I'm like, you know what? This isn't, this isn't good enough. So I'm not gonna stick with it. And so she does talk about passion and that often gets lost in her argument. People just focus mm-hmm. on the perseverance part. And she said in her TED Talk, I don't know how to develop it yet. I still am not right. sure how to develop it. So, you know, in fairness to her, I think people are are always critical of those that are in the arena and she put herself into the arena. And mm-hmm. with that is going to come criticism. And then at the same time, science is meant to be criti- criticized. It's meant to be, um, you know, broken down and questioned. So those are just some of my thoughts as well, I think, think about me, that.
1: I, what I think is that people are so desperate especially like if you're talking about kids and education or something like that but we want the new thing that promises to fix things
0: clean so, clean just give me the clean yeah, thing
1: give me and and the, the, you know let hack be you know let me hack the rest of my life let me hack my kids success let me hack blah blah, blah. and then hack my marriage blah, blah 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 and you know again you were completely right angelus you know said that this is early research. I don't know how to develop this. I don't know if this is more an innate preference or something like that. And then six months later I was asked to do this panel discussion on grit. She wasn't available, but a couple social psychologists were there and, and a couple um competitors. And I was sitting there and someone said that he was running a in a charter school and the entire school had developed a grit-based curriculum. And I said, how? It's only been around for like six months. Angela hasn't developed a grit-based curriculum. So what do you mean you have an entire charter school developed to grit? How's that working out? And I'm not too, I'm a little worried about your kids. So it was just sort of this, you know, desperation to have this new shiny object that's going to things and then people market things, right. You know, like, um, You know, uh, Emmons' research about gratitude suddenly spawned a a gratitude journal industry. You know, he he, you know ask him, do you need to spend twenty dollars on a gratitude journal, or you can just you know he they just use they use paper when in his experiments. So I think that you know, and that is not the scientist's fault, Uh, but you know, so that that complicates things. Is then you know, how does that run out in the wild? And, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll,
0: I'll show it there. <laughs> we're going we're to talk about all this stuff. I love it. And <laughs> I'm a big believer that it's, nothing is one size fits all. And we try to make things one size fits all. And yep. I've got two small kids and I don't know what the hell I'm doing, raising them, but I'm doing the best I can, but they are so different. And I mean like 14 months apart and just so different and how we nurture their nature is going to be important. And um. So, Can anyways, I push back
1: on that right now.
0: Yeah, 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 go push. Go go push away.
1: <laughs> so, FYI. Yeah. Um. And I haven't met your children so far. Be it for me, to, I, and I'm not a therapist. I don't diagnose people on the fly. I just go, oh, but you know, I have a study, and I always have a. The more random it is, the more I have a study. Um, and we actually wrote about this in nurture shock, that parents tend to define children as different as night and day they're not really they're different from each other but it's actually a way to help the parents and the children develop as individuals you know she's the smart one he's the athlete he's the musician she's the artist and and then over time they actually become self-fulfilling prophecies so that if you look in terms of the family they may be different but if you compared your kids to another set of population, you might not see any differences at all. Um,
0: I, I might agree with part of that and disagree I mean, with I part of that. I I haven't met them.
1: So, well, I'm not saying yeah. that there's, you know, and I'm not saying there's no difference, but we but we tend to, you know, just as human nature, if you only have two or three people, you see the differences. And when then you put them in a larger context, you might say, oh, you know, my family were all basically you know, we basically look the same, we have the same rhythm at our talking, we have the same way to approach things, and I don't see that until I go to another family. So it's not that they're not different, but but parents generally tend to sort of, and kids themselves will all say, it today, and that's I don't like that he likes that because they're trying to carve out this individual identity. But
0: I didn't say anything about what they do. It was more about who they are. And mm-hmm. for me, who they are is different. So my daughter is more fearless. She is more fierce. She is more independent. She is more interested in helping and and like caring for others. Whereas my son is super sweet. He's He's more gentle. He mm-hmm. is uh very conscientious, and there are de- there's definitely overlap between the two as well and I do agree I'm one of three boys, and I think me and my brothers are very different and if you put us into a room with a hundred people, we probably are more similar than we are different than those people so i, th- I think I think there's an agreement there I, we are uh i th- i think there's for us, our second is more of a challenge for us as parents. Um, and for us, we are constantly working on not stifling that person just at our own convenience. Because a, a, what's just because a three-year-old is an easy three-year-old doesn't mean they're going to be an easy 30-year-old. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. like so Or, or vice versa. Or vice versa. like
1: it, know, the, the four-year-old who's saying, I want to see your manager – may actually do really well at 30, but you don't want to do with them at
0: <laughs> Exactly. So it's it, the yeah. challenge of parenting for me is, well, how do I put my own self-interest aside to make sure that I don't stifle or mm-hmm. hinder their growth? Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about growth a lot. Uh, there's one other piece that I want to hit on when you talk about adaptability. And I think it's, it's a great word. Last night, I'm watching the NBA playoffs and the Miami Heat who are not favored over the Boston Celtics, and one might argue are less talented than the Boston Celtics, played a zone defense. They were losing by 17 points in like, you know, 15, 20 minutes into the game. They're losing by 17 points. They're getting their asses kicked. They come out in the second half and completely change the game by adapting and playing a zone defense. I think of Bill Belichick, the head coach of the New England Patriots, who is a complex human being and complicated from a leadership standpoint and people have their own views. But I think about how every week he adapts his game plan based on who they're playing and adjusts what they're going to do. I think about there have been super bowls where a team like the new Orleans saints ran an onside kick, and ran that at halftime. Or recently, the Philadelphia Eagles did a play where they handed it off to the running back and had the quarterback go out for a pass and adjusted. Uh, war, you mentioned, there are all kinds of amazing stories about people that did not adapt and and died, <laughs> literally. Uh, um, so adaptability for me, I love this. Fra- I have a framework that really is what my book is about, that your mindset for preparation is actually different than your mindset for performance. So in preparation, we should actually be pre- perfectionistic, dot all our I's, cross all our T's, and then be adaptable in performance. When we're preparing, be humble, get help, uh, try to get all kinds of information from as many places as possible. And then when you're between the lines, have this inner belief in yourself that is unshakable, even arrogant is the word that I use, this unshakable belief that you're the right person for the job, regardless of what, you're, what kind of results you're getting. So I have a bunch of these shifts that, that I focus on. There's like 30 or 40 of them that kept coming as I started working with clients. The book only focuses on nine, but you mentioned adaptability and and that's Mm -hmm. one of those shifts. And I think when you are perfectionistic in your preparation, you've earned the right to then adjust because you're, you're, you're adapting, but they've probably run that zone defense at some point in their preparation. It's not like they're just pulling it out of the, the right. sky, like they're, but they're adapting based on what is the situation and what's the environment and what do we need, and, and so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just the idea of shifting from preparation to performance and and using adaptability that way.
1: Uh, well, you know, I think the the, the danger is, it, I mean, I definitely you need to be training to the, you know the best possible level. One of the, I think problems sometimes is people will practice in the ideal setting and and that's a problem because they're not going to compete in an ideal setting so i mean i remember again back to figure skating i don't remember who it was but someone was talking about the difference between olympic skating and you know pro skating when they got a job on like ice capades or something like olympic skating was perfect dice Pro skating, there were holes in the ice. <laughs> you were like, you had to ex- add extra jumps to time them over to the divots in the ice, right? So I think that there needs to be a fine line. And some of this is about where you are in the learning curve. But uh, But especially as you have more expertise, having a sort of range of possibilities in performance, because that way, the first time it doesn't go right and exactly what you want in performance, it's not going to throw you. So it's not that it needs to be wholly different every single time because you need a a narrow enough scope in that sort of, you know, element, right? Whether we were, I don't know, um, if you were pitching a, a baseball and you were trying to get it within a particular target and maybe you shift the target to the left you know, a couple inches, and then to the right, a couple inches, or up or down. You're not going to necessarily want to go two or three feet to the side because that's too much, right? I mean, you may have a wild pitch, and it may actually happen in a game. Hopefully, it doesn't. But, but you want so you want to have some degree of variation to sort of tr- start training adaptability because adaptability is a skill that's trained just as much as that actual pitching ability, right? But, so you want to have a range of difference. And variability in training that allows you to have that last element. So you're you're definitely pursuing perfection, but it's not just doing the one thing in the one way. Um, that's presuming you've already had some expertise. If you're a true novice, then you know you're still trying to figure out the rules. One of the things I love in the research, and once I heard this, I was like, oh, this just makes so much sense. Novices think there is a right answer and they want to know what it is right so if you and i are in a brand new uh a sport it's never existed before right but there is one expert and we go you might try and help me you know give me some tips on what it is but i'm like you know this is just our first day too i'm gonna hear from the expert i paid to hear from the expert i want the right answer but once you have expertise, then you realize there's more than one way to skin a cat. And the answer isn't the best way, the perfect answer, but what works in this particular moment. I love and love it. When you have the expert and once you've made that shift, which is really interesting uh, that experts can then, the novice only wants to hear from the expert, but the expert will actually hear from someone who's completely outside the expertise. I have coaches of sports that I cannot play and they know that ask me what I think and I don't say well here's how you should you know you, you know I don't give them a specific instruction for how they should play their sport better because that would be preposterous but I do maybe say well here's what the science says in this other context or here's an idea from the science how can you apply that and they don't just say well you aren't you know the Olympic medalist I am get out of here They trust their own ability to apply what I'm trying to communicate in this new mechanism and in this new context. So that's actually who you listen to and how you can take information in is actually a sign of your expertise because you see that ability to change and you're not looking for the one way to do this. You're looking for the best way to accomplish it today.
0: So good. So practice. (laughs) Let's talk about practice.
1: Okay.
0: So, for me, the framework I use is preparation mind, performance mind, and then there's practice. And sports is actually better at this than most other industries because they actually have practice. And for okay. me, a, a great practice will involve the preparation, which is about growing, learning, developing. So, maybe we're watching film, maybe we're working on our footwork. It's not simulating what it's like to be in a wicked performance environment. But it is about growing, learning and developing or perfecting a skill, you know, working on developing our skill. But another part of practice is about putting yourself in these wicked environments and Mm -hmm. learning how to develop your mind for a performance. And I love what you said about novices and experts, because I think about a sport like golf, where everyone thinks, oh, golfers, you know, if you just put the time in, you'll get great. And I'm like, Okay, okay buddy. Let's go see I don't think
1: that. <laughs> Let's go see you
0: all 350 yards like these guys can on tour. Um and, and, but golf, I play with a lot of really good golfers and I am not a really good golfer. And those experts try to give me advice and I'm always like, you can give me all the advice you want, but you're not in my body. You don't have my flexibility, you don't have my hand-eye coordination. There are things that you have that I don't have and I'm trying to learn and grow and develop and mm-hmm. I I can't have Tiger Woods swing. Like it's it's not going to happen. And so I think about practice for a novice is I do need to get my mechanics to a place where then I can trust them. And when you hear an athlete say it's all mental, the reason they're saying that is because they've gotten so good at the technical side and they're physically so, so good physically that the part that's going to unlock that physical and technical coming out is then the mental. But if you're a novice, it's not all mental. You need to go get the physical and technical skills and learn that stuff. And then it becomes mental. So I've often said, the more you do something, the more expertise you have, then the more mental it becomes. But until you acquire the the skill, it's it's not all mental. You still have the technical and you have to learn those technical and in sports, also physical components.
1: Um, That's a really interesting point. I think that I would just push back on one little part, which is, I still think it's important. Mental is novice, is still important. Because if I'm going into something saying, I can't do this, or this is scary, or this is going to hurt, I'm not going to get that physical skill that I need. So certainly, yes, you absolutely have to have this physical skill before the sort of psychological warfare or the, you know, responses are, you know, become the difference. But, but mental is never not important, even in lab studies where they've had people, um, you know, we want to go into challenge and threat. Um, But, you know, a you know, medical students who are being learned, uh, being um, learning a new surgical technique, you know, and they're just, you know, simulating with, you know, chopsticks or in a box, there's no actual physical harm. But, you know, if they're told, you know, this is really difficult and hardly anyone gets this, they don't do as well as people who say, now, this is just a variation on something you'd already know how to do, you know, how to eat with chopsticks now you're just going to use a really expensive version of it to move a piece of cell from one to the other. And they go, oh, okay, well, if this is a version of something I've already done in a new context, then I should be able to do that. And then they can. So so I don't think mental is ever not important. Uh, but in terms of how how determinative it is, then I think you're totally dead on and that it's more determinative to the experts yeah
0: yeah and and just to clarify 100% agree nothing is never for me nothing is never important the physical the technical the mental everything is important and i i think it can be debilitating to a novice if you tell them oh it's just all mental like golf is all mental and then they start thinking well all right maybe it's my mental and then they don't work on the technical and those other skills so i think that was the point i was trying to make i think we're on the mm-hmm. same page there yeah. mm-hmm. you, You talk about challenge and threat. Perhaps Mm -hmm. this is a good time to talk about growth mindset. And um, first of all, walk me through your introduction to growth mindset, because I think it's a little different than my introduction to growth mindset. So I'd love to go to the place and time where you first find growth mindset and take us through what that was like for you uh, and the work of Carol Dweck. Um, And I'd just love to know that journey a little bit.
1: Memories um yeah that was a long time ago now when was it uh Nine, 2000 2001 something right there no not that that's not that's not right um i don't know i don't remember mid-2000s mid-2000s um so Two 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 and a half years ago, two and a half years before Nurture Shot came out.
0: <laughs> when did her book, when did Mindset come out? Do you know?
1: Um, Mindset came out the same year that we wrote about her. Okay. And the book was actually already published, um, but so it, it was available and I don't think she'd really done much of a tour on it or anything at that point. And we did not know about her book when we wrote about her. Got it. Um we actually um uh, we being my friend Poe Bronson and I were hired by New York magazine to write a piece on the science of ambition. And you know, it's a very New York magazine, New York topic, right? It's pretty great. And so we were interviewing all of these members of the Young Presidents Organization, which is a elite, you have to be in your mid-30s. If you age out, they kick you out. <laughs> Your company has to have X million dollars and X number of employees.
0: And million and dollars,
1: millions At least of dollars. 10. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, the actually, I, I know quite a bit about the YPOs. Um, the dollar amount I specifically didn't say it. The reason is because the dollar amount changes depending on where you are. Yeah, the region. So yeah. So the New York region, a million isn't getting you in the door. Um, Ten million. Even in there's more than one chapter in New York, so even one chat, you know one chapter might take you or not, depending. Um, and you have to have X number of employees and all this stuff. So I was interviewing all these YPO guys. And I you know, and I would say things like, okay, on a scale of one to ten. rate your ambition. And the number of them who said fifteen. <laughs> and they were all so proud of the fact that they said fifteen. And that I'm like, no, the scale is ten. No, 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 I'm 15. Okay, tell me why you think you're 15 and my scale only goes to 10. And I've always been ambitious. I had three part-time jobs and I was two years old. i have had another one, but those darn child labor laws were holding me back. And we heard this so many times that Poe and I started thinking about it and wondering, is this tycoon lore? This is just like, the sort of story everyone is supposed to have, that they were always ambitious and that they were always this go-getter, even, you know, they were two months early from birth because they just had to go. Um, Or was it real? I mean, we, we really, we started wondering, you know, was it real? Could you see this in kids? Was there something you could develop in kids? And so I started doing research on the science of motivation and motivation in kids. And I found Carol Dweck and um, her studies on praise. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is really important. The difference between thinking you worked hard at something or you're really good at something, you're smart or you worked hard at. And the enormous impact this had on kids' subsequent and current performance. And there, she had one um, study that had specifically three studies in the in the single article. And I emailed Poe and I called him and I said, I emailed you something right now. You need to read it right now, and call me back. He said, Ash, I'm on the phone with the YPO. I'm like, I do not care. You need to stop whatever you're doing, and you need to read this right now. And. And I said that like two or three times and you know, we're on the phone all day, every day. But I don't really say something like that unless it's important, so he's like, okay. So he calls me back about 15 minutes later, oh my God, and I'm like, I know, oh my God. Sorry for yelling in your ears. But that was, we were yelling in our ears. And that was when we really sort of, you know, met on the page, Carol and her work. And then obviously we read everything she had published and then started talking to her grad students and her colleagues who were literally thanking us for writing about Carol Dweck. And the New York Magazine editors went, ah, we can do something about YPO's any old days, doing this thing about kids and praise and motivation. And um, yeah, so that's what happened. Are
0: your your thoughts the same today as they were then as you were unpacking the research and, and the data?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I see it in different contexts now, but it it hasn't really changed. And I also see how it's applied. Like we were talking about how people, you know, ran too, uh, may have run too far with Angela Deckworth's work. I see that sometimes in Carol's work. I, you know, Carol never said, overpraise people, just say, overpraise children, just say you worked really hard and use that in meaningless praise. I never said that. We were very clear. Praise should be genuine and earned. Do not praise a kid for you really worked hard at that if you know they did not. And not everybody heard that message. Some people just went immediately, you're so smart, you're so smart, to, wow, you worked hard, you worked hard, you worked hard. And um, it was still overpraise and empty praise, which is not productive. And in fact, there's very specific research that shows you can really overpraise anything. Uh, We even wrote about this in Dirture Shock, that in China, they're as obsessed with effort as Americans are with smarts. And at a certain point, a bunch of Chinese kids started giving up and saying, well, I just can't put up as much effort as those other kids. I don't know. I got to go play and take a nap. And that they started, we think that effort is malleable and how much you put into it is up to you. Uh, but these Chinese kids who'd been drilled effort, 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 actually decided to think that about effort. That some people were just innately more able to put effort and they weren't. So been a little more mindful, you know, I, I don't know if mindful is the right word, but I watch how that has sort of played out. But the idea of, you know, sort of broadening out from the praise idea to sort of the growth mindset and fixed mindset.
0: Can you you give our listeners just a little more context on each, just in case they they are unaware of it?
1: Absolutely. So, so Carol was starting with this kids um, thing. And I was saying um, that the idea of you um, being praised for intelligence, you're really smart is what we would now um, label as sort of a fixed mindset meaning you were basically born with this ability and you've either got it or you don't and and so therefore it's fixed because it's innate it's not up to you it's just something you have or you don't it's a it's a pretty binary situation the growth mindset which is sort of encapsulated in a parent praising a child by saying you worked really hard at that is focusing on the idea that we can grow, we can develop, we can learn with practicing new skills, putting effort into them, and that you're not inherently good or bad at something. It's about how you work on something.
0: And I love, I love just the idea of adding the yet. So you're not there yet, and right. sort of that idea of the yet um, has always been clean and clear for me as a reminder. So um, I'll just throw that in there as well.
1: Super important. Yet is everything, because. When so in the kid context, when kids who have a fixed mindset or are told to have one, right? you are smart, you are gifted, right? I mean, gifted is the the ultimate in fixed mindset. something, the universe, God, the genetic lottery said, you are gifted and you are therefore smart and can do something, and these other kids are not gifted, too bad for them, right? But in this fixed mindset, then, mistakes become an indictment upon your ability. There is no such thing as a a mistake. A mistake is I can do this or not. So things become very high stakes when you're afraid of mistakes, because again, everything is a proof, oh, well, I wasn't really good at this all along. So people with fixed mindsets tend to be uh, more willing to give up, more perfectionistic, more um not able to be adaptable or agile because they can't change because they were told that their success is based on this finite skill that they have or they don't so it shouldn't change over time it should be consistent and any variation is is an indictment again that they really weren't supposed to be there all along in the growth mindset you're focusing on improvement over time rather than the result so If you're good at it, and this is not necessarily easy, certainly not for me, because I know I had to fix my foot for a really long time, and sometimes I certainly still do. Um, But the, the idea behind the growth mindset is that you can even be excited that you made a mistake because it was an opportunity to learn something new and to grow from it. And that if you actually are doing something perfect every time, that's actually not, you might be underperforming because what you're doing is you're doing something that's safe and easy and not actually pushing yourself so um i live in dc now but previously um, in my free time for fun i ran a tutoring program in inner city los angeles
0: oh, and big Gail just you know she had a lot of free time i'm sure just yeah
1: decided mm-hmm. to do that yep. yeah yep i did for 20 years still <laughs> low, going on low
0: achiever ashley's a ashley's a low achiever here
1: <laughs> i really am an underachiever but um But my, um, you know, if the kids had finished their homework, I would say, you know, hey, just, you know, go grab a book, whatever you want. And we had everything from Dr. Seuss to encyclopedias and everything in between. And my fifth graders would regularly grab Dr. Seuss. And it's not that they loved Dr. Seuss so much. It wasn't that this was, oh, the places you go and this is their favorite inspiring story. This was, they knew they could do it and they wanted the comfort of knowing they had the easy win. I was like, but yeah, you might actually enjoy the book you haven't read yet. No, no, I really like ABCs. Hair Days really great book. <laughs> no, it's really not. <laughs> so, um so that's I think the difference then in the growth mindset is actually seeking out feedback. How can I do better? Because you're focused on that improvement process. Rather than if someone actually says, well, you can do better by doing blank, then panic and saying, oh, my God, so I really did suck about this all along and someone should have just told me. And and I think that when we think about that more broadly, I love that actually connects to me in all of the other work I've done and in other ways, which is I, I've done a lot of research. And again, we can go into this this challenge and threat construct. Um, the science of humility, all our um, uh, mental toughness, all track back to whether or not you believe you can grow and improve. And that, that, that's a good thing and not a sign of failure.
0: I even think about what we were talking about with my kids earlier. Do you believe humans have gifts? Well, I, I mean, the nurture nature is the easiest way to have this conversation, but- um, I think I heard you say on another podcast that you were reading at two and a half or three, um, mm-hmm. which I'll tell you I've got a three and a half and almost five year old who are brilliant and amazing.
1: Sure. <laughs> I'm not allowed to say
0: that. Um
1: You can say it to me, you just can't say yeah, it to Yeah
0: I can't say it to the world <laughs> and they never listen to me. this conversation. Um yeah, I won't let them listen to a single podcast until they're in college or whatever they're doing <laughs> when they're eighteen to twenty three. Who knows what they'll be doing?
1: That's like a good
0: uh, But like, I'm curious if you think that is there any innate gifts that people possess? And when I say innate, do we know if it's zero or one or whatever it might be? But uh, where are you on gifts in, in nature and nurture? And how do you think about all that?
1: Well, you know, I mean, if you ask a serious scientist, nature or nurture, the answer should be yes. It's Yes. Nature, yes, you may have some gifts, but if the environment doesn't facilitate development of them, then it doesn't matter. Right. I if I have um let's just say, if I had a gene for being seven foot tall, um, but I lived in a period that was having famine when I was five to nine years old, I'm never gonna grow to my full height, right? Because the environment, the physical needs that I did, didn't support my ultimate capability. So, um, by this, but you know, you can also do it in the flip side, right? I I can have, um, you know, I can have a talent that I'm developing and successful. Um, but my nature is that I'm going to be kind of a flake. So I might give up there's, but, and then where if we really want to geek out, I love epigenetics. I'm completely fascinated by epigenetics. And you want? Do I want to, You want me to geek out? No. Yeah. You <laughs>
0: want to geek out about? You don't have to ask for permission. You just go ahead and geek.
1: I always ask. That's why we for have permission. a podcast?
0: <laughs> just go right ahead. This is your world. Yeah,
1: talk about. So, um, so epigenetics is. So we can't change your genes, your genes are your genes. I mean, there's some people who are doing you know editing with CRISPR and stuff like that, but basically you're born with your set of genes, and your life experience does not change your genes. But epigenetics is understanding how the environment and environment we're talking about as broad as we possibly can, right socioeconomics, actual physical environment and everything in between. that that environment can change not the gene itself but the genes expression so i'm a very pale irish girl and you know that's my genes but if i'm in an environment that's regularly sunny i'm gonna burn all the time so that's my body having the gene expression is changed by the environment right i'm and for those of you who are actual scientists screaming at my oversimplification please know i am actually oversimplifying and i'm aware of that (laughs) But um, So researchers have been looking, actually, and have found that the genetic expression is as inheritable, at least potentially, as the gene itself. So there have been a couple studies recently looking at transgenerational inheritance of trauma. Grandchildren of Holocaust survivors are significantly more likely to be anxious and depressed than children who were not. Um, grandchildren of the Holocaust. And what they think may have happened is the trauma, that the the genes were defining stress responses. You know, what is my life like? How am I preparing for the next round of trauma in my life? That the genes then, um, the environment changed the way those genes were expressed, and that that then is inheritable. So that they're which makes evolutionary sense, right? The idea that if I'm raising kids in a stressful environment, then my kids are going to innately come out with more stress and more response. So, um, but that also, again, you know, goes to this growth and fixed, right? That when your environment continues to change, even if you think you have a genetic predisposition, changes in the environment, and again, we might be talking social, not just physical, um, can actually change things over
0: time. You know what's so interesting? This is you're talking about the science. I'm going to go anecdotally. So I'm a grandchild of a Holocaust survivor. My grandma lost brothers, murdered, uh, family displaced. Uh, my grandma passed away a year ago. Mm-hmm. The messaging that my grandma gave to me and my my siblings, and uh, at least what the messaging I heard um, was, we're grateful to be American. Uh, mm-hmm. We're we're lucky to have everything we have because I've seen other countries tear themselves apart, and mm-hmm. I've had to be in a camp, and I've seen the worst of humanity. And we are fortunate to have what we have. I also have friends who are grandchildrens of Holocaust survivors, where I think their grandparent, the trauma of that experience, they handled very differently, and. I, I, so now I'm. you've got me really wondering about them and how the stories that they either told or that they heard, because sometimes those are separate and different, and how they interpreted it in the messaging and how that could perpetuate how they show up in the world. And well,
1: epigenetics is actually the biological. Mm. So certainly if you have a family that's saying, We have seen darkness, but we can be grateful for a new experience that that's going to have its own effect. But the epigenetic scientists are actually just looking at the biochemical phenomenon that would be completely apart from it. So, if you were an adopted and you had never met your grandparents, and there's you know there's animal studies looking trying to sort of split apart those elements. So obviously the the Holocaust um, study. And there's, I think, a Cambodia and a, and a couple other ones, Rwanda maybe, where they've been trying to do this. And it's hard with humans because you did, you had your grandmother's stories and your personal experiences. And um, so from the scientist's perspective, you know, they're trying to isolate the variables and see how, how much her teaching to you is different than, say, the fact that, you know, she missed X number of meals and how did that change the way her body metabolized meals forever, and did that change your metabolism? And the animal studies actually are saying that that sort of physical response to stress, even when you don't have any of the actual parenting or cultural differences, persist. But then your family would either add to it or subtract to it, depending on that circumstance. That's why That's why when you said nature and nurture, the answer is and because none of these, because nature and nurture are not fixed. Neither of them are. So yes, you can have biological gifts at the start, or maybe you were inherited to have them, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. I found out in my mid thirties that I have um, the gene for elite runners in muscle development. Like I have the fast twitch thing. Well, I found that out about twenty years too late.
0: <laughs> not yet, maybe not yet. We, we there's a lot of there's a lot of marathons, Ironmans. You can do it all. I'm gonna. Yeah,
1: but I'm never gonna be going to the Olympics unless yeah. I'm buying a seat in the stands.
0: Senior, senior. <laughs> we could get you into some senior stuff. Um, it's it's interesting, and I think about the mental and the physical also, and how they're related. So. If you are facing a physical trauma and how that impacts psychological and then mm-hmm. how the psychological impacts the physical. Mm-hmm. Uh, really it, it's it's fascinating.
1: Yeah, um, I used to think they were separate and now I realize they're not. Yeah, they're, pretty they're connected. So enmeshed I can't even pull one apart. Yeah. Which is interesting because it changes how I respond to my own situation. Like, you know, especially with with COVID and everything, and and I was pretty sick myself in the spring. And then, you know, later I I just couldn't kick it and I would, you know, I'd be kind of sitting there on my couch and I'd be, you know, sleepy or down and like, okay, am I down or am I sick? You know, especially because, again, socially isolated, limited in what I was doing, my reference points, to literally think to myself... Are you depressed? Are you sad because you haven't seen your friends and you're not making any progress? Or is it that you're just not feeling well physically? And it's been interesting, the more I'm more aware of those, that it's kind of sometimes easier and sometimes harder to pull those apart. (laughs) Then I go, well, let me try some vitamin C and take a nap and see if I feel better. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh Yeah.
0: What we're going through right now, it it is it's all right. Like it, Mm -hmm. it it's all a factor, Um, and so it's relevant. I want to just kick something off you when it comes to growth mindset, and and bounce something off you. So as I was creating these shifts for preparation and performance, one of them that came up was growth in preparation and fixed in performance. I didn't highlight it in the book because I didn't feel like I had enough evidence to support it as a standalone shift. But one of the things that I noticed with my elite clients, especially in sports, is this growth mindset absolutely in preparation? Always improving. I'm not there yet. I'm I'm still a novice, and I still have room to grow and develop. But when they get between the lines and they're in the arena, they do believe that they're God gifted. <laughs> they do believe that you know their intelligence or their talent is special. Um, and we even talk about using affirmations. I am resilient, strong, uh, you know, I am statements, which I think are more fixed statements, I'm good. Um, And so it's one of the things I've been curious about, because I have immense respect for the growth mindset concept and love her book. It's probably one of the top three books I recommend when someone's like, Oh, what's a book that I should check out? I'm like, "Oh, start there. Like, that's a great place to to just start. So I am a are, men- are
1: two and three Nurture Shock and oh, Yeah, dog? of course, of
0: course. <laughs> I, I knew that was coming.
1: Um, anyway, I'm sorry, my publisher would hurt me if I didn't.
0: <laughs> huge Top Dog fan, huge Top Dog fan. And we'll talk more about competitiveness as, because I think growth and competitiveness are, if you go to any professional sports team and ask them like, what do your people need as a baseline? I think they would say they need to always be improving and they need to be able to compete. And I've been in war rooms. I've been in locker rooms. Um, and when there is a lack of competitive spirit, it's, you're done. Like you, mm-hmm. at that level, if you're not competitive, you um, it, it, it's a killer. So top dog, I thought did a really good job of distilling out what it is and what it isn't. And we we will we'll definitely unpack that, but I'm curious. I didn't
1: mean to throw off. Your, sorry, no, 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 off. you're good. You're I good. just always go for the joke. I apologize.
0: No, I'm, <laughs> well, you you said you don't like to talk about yourself. One of the things that I said in my pre notes is like, where did she get her sense of humor? Because it's, it's, it's there. Um, but we'll focus more on, on, on growth mindset for now. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? It, it, can a fixed mindset be helpful when you're performing? How about this? You do all this research, you're obsessed, you geek out, you read, you're going over everything. Mm-hmm. But then you're going to talk to the Aspen Institute or you're going to talk to a tech company or a pro sports team. When you're giving your talk, are you thinking I want this is my opportunity to improve or and add the yet? Or in those moments are you thinking this no, I know this stuff. I'm good. I, like and delivering it in more of a fixed mindset. I guess that would be the question for you.
1: Hmm, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, even I had an answer that was supportive of your answer, but it wasn't, in, I guess, the not back. I don't like talking about it, but me. Um, let me do the science first. Go ahead. And then maybe that'll actually help me answer that question. So um, it's not the only model, but I kind of like the 4C model of mental toughness. And the 4C model of mental toughness is, is it a challenge? So we got to get to that because people who don't know about this are, are going crazy. Uh, challenge and threat. She's she's teased Apologies. challenge and threat like
0: three times. I know. We'll it's get it. so we'll bad. It. I
1: never do that. Challenge I never and do threat. I apologize. We
0: will, I promise we'll get we to we challenge. We
1: promise we'll get to it. Promise. And have to Pinky swear. To you. Pinky okay. swear. Tweet me and tell me that I screwed up because I apologize. I never usually define terms and not define them at the same time. Uh, but So the other parts of the 4C model are commitment, and commitment is interesting because commitment in this expression isn't simply just that I'm going to do this, but I'm to, to the point where I'm going to take a leadership role. I'm going to actually go forward in this. I'm not just here. I'm going to, you know, like that, that old gag in war movies when they say, I need a volunteer, and everybody steps back, and one poor schlub is looking forward going, What? Did you link that with,
0: with vulnerability and sort of Brene Brown and courage with commitment or no?
1: Um, I don't know. I hadn't thought of it that way. Cool. Um, I always admit when I don't know things. Yeah, I don't know. I just haven't thought about it. I don't know. Um, so control. So challenge, commitment, confidence, and control. And control, and these these two, I think, really fit with what you were talking about. Control is I'm in charge of my destiny. I am deciding this. And that one, I think, you know, to me, especially because I, I I don't think I'm very confident and I tend to get rattled pretty quickly. And when I looked at this four c model, it was like, commitment. well, I can teach people to be committed. Or I, or that's a choice that they can make, and you know, and can I do this leadership role and stuff? I'm like, oh, that okay, that's doable. Um, we're gonna talk about challenge in a minute. And I could teach you how to think in a challenge state, so that one's cool. Um, control. Ooh, is something under my control? Is the outcome under my control? <laughs> And and I and that one I struggled with, but I kept looking at the science and the researchers in terms of, you know, who gets a gold medal, who are the elite, you know, tycoons. Control isn't necessarily a particular outcome, but it is a level of engagement. And it's simply remembering sometimes I chose to be here. Right? I may not, you know, I may not be able to decide if I'm throwing the winning basket. Or, you know, sliding home for the home run, or I bought a bunch of shares and they went up or down, but I still chose to be in this, right? Like you were saying earlier, you know, and the Teddy Roosevelt quote, you know, who who chose to be in the arena? I chose to be in the arena. So in that way, I am controlling my destiny because I decided to be there. And the other part is Confidence and the research shows that the truly elite successful performers and we're not just talking in sports but a bunch of different um spheres had what the researchers called a quote unshakable confidence in their ability you even used that word earlier so maybe, I, call it,
0: I call it arrogance is unshakable and people people do not like when you use the word arrogant but to me arrogance paired with humility is when you get like amazing, amazing well, results. Well, let's talk
1: about challenge and threat and humility next. Those <laughs> are my favorite things to talk about. They really are. Um, but but that was really interesting to me, like unshakable confidence. I do not have unshakable confidence. I uh, qu- quite. I have shakable confidence on a good day. And that I think was sort of, so that was really interesting, this belief that I can do it. And, and of all of the things in that sort of 4C model of mental toughness, that was to, that one to me is the one that always seems the hardest that, um, to teach as a skill. And the only, and cause I want to help people. I want to get people to improve. I want to improve. So that one seems hard to me. And some of it may be an upbringing thing. Maybe there's some biological components. I certainly know when my cortisol spikes higher than other people's and it certainly does. Um, in response to stress, I have a strong stress response, but, but I, but I also wonder like, well, how do I get there? And that some of that has to be again, back with what you were saying in the growth mindset and practice that I have done this, I know this. So when you were talking about, you know, when I go give a speech or something like that, um, uh, you know, I'm my my unshakable. If I get there, is that I know the numbers, I know the study, I'm not making this up, I'm not winging the content.
0: Competence. And, it's uh, you're
1: competent with it. Yeah, and um, that, and I've checked all my sources, and I and I believe in the information that I'm imparting, so that I have that part down, so I don't. And in terms of a goal, sort of. I definitely, I would like to be better, but that's not my focus when I'm doing an event or doing some sort of consulting thing because it's not about me at that point. It's about the audience. And if I have done something a million times, but it's new content for them, if I'm doing something you know completely artistic and fun for me, it might come at the expense of them. And it's not about me then, it's about them. And and that's really important. Like there was this one time I was giving a speech to a thousand people and I had this huge plan and, uh, and structure. And I asked a question about Carol Dweck and I realized no one in the room had heard any of it before. And within one second, I threw out my entire outline and did it in a completely different speech. Adapted. Had to, because I had to meet their needs. And, you know, so that's the thing is I, for me on that part, you know, what, what's my goal? And my goal isn't me, you know, people, you know, if I, you know, I'm after a meeting or a speech, you know, someone will say, well, how'd that go? I'm like, I don't know. You tell me because how I think it went. I mean, I can tell if people are bored and they're shifting in the seat or they're checking their phones like that. I, you know, I've got a joke that I think will go over and it's, you know, nobody laughs or I get a laugh, you know, I mean, I can tell that stuff, but But in terms of was this valuable, which is really what matters, what I need to know is the people from the audience, did they get that from me? So I will learn, you know, certainly there are times when I'm better or worse than others. I'm human, unfortunately. Um, But, you know, so I'm trying to become better as a communicator, better to help people in those tools. So I try and learn. But in the moment, like you were saying in the fix, it's just not about me at that point. It's about what, what can I do to get them the best thing they need? So if there's a growth I'm focused on, it's theirs, not mine.
0: Yeah. I just think it's an interesting potential shift for people to make.
1: Yeah, that's Um, interesting. I just, I've literally never thought of it that way. Yeah. In terms of me, I think I probably would have thought it more in terms of other people, but in, yeah. Yeah,
0: because if you are supposed to share information and you just focus on your own growth and development, you might miss the opportunity to do your job. And right. I, I, you nailed this for me, which is I had a talk with a sports team a year ago, and I went back to the complete basics that I learned in grad school a decade ago.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the feedback I got from that talk was so next level compared to the one I had given previously. And I think it was because they were from an educational standpoint on the stuff that I study, they needed the beginning. They didn't Mm -hmm. need where I was. They didn't need the stuff that I was interested in. They needed like a a starting point. And Mm -hmm. Too often, I want to present all the things that I find interesting because I'm, I've already learned that, so I'm not that interested, but my job is to be in service to ah. them and help them develop. And it's really yeah. tricky as a presenter because y- y- you have to give them the fundamentals and the basics if you want to get them to another place. And you hear this all the time with brilliant minds who you listen to and you're like, I have no idea what that person was talking about because right. you're not you're not there yet and um, so that, that that resonated with me a ton. But even,
1: it's not even just you know content wise you obviously have to know where your audience is the first question I ask is well who am I talking to what is it they need right but but even in terms of you were talking about performance I was a um, long time ago I was supposed to do this uh, speech at Pop tech, which I did do it's available on internet somewhere you want to watch I watched and, it I liked it <laughs>
0: <laughs> you were a performer. You were like getting into th- your theatrical mode. I think on that one.
1: Yeah. Well, here. Well, so here's the funny backstory. Um, the site for the event was the Camden, Maine Opera House, and and they were filming it, and there was going to be live broadcasts throughout the whole state of Maine, and then it was going to be on the web and all of this stuff. And they kept going, it's the opera house, it's the opera house at the opera house. I have I'm a trained singer. I have sang gospel for 20 years. I sang opera for two very sad months. I grew up in musical theater and I love to sing and I will sing at the very think I, the the if I think your hat is going to drop, I will say, you know, the drop of a hat. Um and so I kept hearing, hmm, Opera House, Opera House, Opera House. And I thought to myself, ooh. And I came up with this idea for a speech where I started the speech by singing. And I was only gonna say, and I and I was like, okay, well, it's gonna be rebroadcast, so I've got to do something in the public domain, you know, some pick an amazing grace. Because like, yeah, amazing grace, I can sing that in a heartbeat no rights issues, don't need backup, easy. And I came up with some rational thing that it related to praise, just in terms of growth and ability and fearlessness. I'm like, yeah, that works perfectly. And the night before the speech, I'm in my hotel. I'm like, yeah, no, that that speech is about you. That speech is about you, wanting to have an ego moment in an opera house. And that's not why you're there. Why you're there is to talk to the people and give them some new ideas about things to think about. Not to hear you sing. Rewrote the whole speech the night before. And and I and I knew as soon as, you know, and in my in the back of my head the whole time, I'm like, yeah, it's all right. It's all right. And and I was like, yep, I knew that was the right decision. And I was in the green room. It's a true story. And they had a little monitor because the green room is in a different part of the theater. So you couldn't, it wasn't backstage, it was on a different floor. So they had a little monitor where we could watch other people speaking. And the person who spoke before me wasn't, in fact, a speech, it was a cellist and she played Amazing Grace. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you would have been so redundant.
1: <laughs> well, actually, you know, I I read I I started laughing and I'm like, well, clearly God won an amazing grace, but not from me. <laughs> and there it is.
0: There it is. Well, if you, did, if you space, that, if you want some like, space you want some space at the end of today, we would love to hear amazing grace. <laughs> you said drop a hat. I don't have a hat on, but I might have to drop it. <laughs> I have freestyled on on this podcast with somebody else. And um, you know, when I was younger and um you know, different times I would freestyle, you know, rap and
1: uh I do occasionally sing during events. I'm sorry I'm not doing it today. But um, the, the hat I, is not dropped. The hat is not dropped. But um but yeah, no, it's just you know, that was a true story <laughs> never before said to the public.
0: Ashley, but, yeah. you you mentioned growing up in, in choirs and amazing grace. So mm-hmm. there was something when you were talking about control that I was thinking about that I'll just wanna you know, bounce off you here, which is a lot of elite performers talk about faith and talk about, you know, they control everything they can, they control what they can control. And mm-hmm. then when it's time to perform, they put they put it in God's hands. And you mm-hmm. hear it all the time. There's prayer involved with a lot of elite performers. If you ever go to a locker room before a game, um, you'll see people praying. You'll see them <laughs> praying after. Um, so faith, you know, that's one element of faith. Faith means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious if you've run into anything around faith as it relates to that C that you were talking about with control and any any ideas there?
1: Well, I, I, you know, perspective taking, right? And and so actually that kind of, I'm going to link because we promised. Transition to so
0: challenge, go for actually, it. Actually, I'm
1: going to start with humility, go back to challenge cool. and then start humility. Love it. So the scientific definition of humility is has three parts. It is an accurate view of your strengths and abilities in the context of the whole. So accurate is important. Remember way back a year ago when we talked about how you gotta have someone else as a reference point? It's gotta be accurate. You start with your strengths. What are you good at? And if you've identified your strengths, it's not to say, ooh, I'm all that, because again, we're doing accurate perception. But then if you've identified your strengths, well, what do you have to offer? How are you going to contribute? How are you going to use these gifts? Then you go to your weaknesses. Now, since we've already started you on a position of strength, you don't need to be defensive, right? You don't say, Well, yeah, but I'm really good. We already started with what you're good at and what you contribute at. But now let's take an accurate look at your or your weaknesses, because we looked at your accurate view of your strengths. And now that we have this accurate view of your weaknesses, this is an opportunity to grow. Right? Because because I want to contribute more. I want to be able to do more things. So I want to be able to add to my my cat, my cat, catalog of strengths with new skills. Or I may realize, you know, the truth is I suck at that. I'm just never going to be good at that. So I need to find someone that I can collaborate with who is good at it. Or if I see someone who's got at it, then I can respect their ability and I can encourage them and maybe I can learn from them um, you know, depending on the circumstance. But I, it, it's not threatening to me, it's all about an experience and including and getting myself in this other state. And then there's the context of the whole. And, depend, and researchers have said there can be a theistic perspective on this or, or an agnostic or atheistic perspective. Um, you know, I, I'm a, the best athlete, but am I the best athlete in history or am I the best athlete currently on my team? Um, neither of those are better or worse, but understanding that relationship, right? And a lot of times the humility researchers, do, some of them are also researchers of awe, awe. And the awe researchers are talking about those moments when you go to the Grand Canyon or you go to the desert and you see more stars than you could have possibly imagined. You're like, wow, I'm really important. I thought I was really important, but history of the universe, uh, maybe not so much. And P- and what's interesting about this is the humble person doesn't take this perspective in terms of this longer view as a, I'm just a small meaningless cog, what's the point, in a bad way. They're not taking it that way. They actually see this as freeing because it means that trying those new things and making mistakes, addressing weaknesses, isn't such a big deal. Because in the greater scheme of things, it's not that big a deal. And I actually, myself, really use the humility research almost as a checklist. Because um, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm a perfectionist. I tend to be really hard on myself. Um, I think my best skill is beating myself up about stuff. I'm sure I will beat myself up about the pop tech story a few minutes ago. Uh, but the you know it's like oh I said something stupid or whatever. But then you know I, I you know my classic is I'm awake at three in the morning because I sent an email with a typo. Well, I always have typos in my emails. Apologies for getting a typo email that's kind of my thing um but I spent six hours writing the I just edited finally and there was a typo (laughs) that's how how this works and I used to just be oh man oh my god I can't believe there's a typo and now I you know if I'm really in that place I think okay humility test is that typo so important that they can't figure out the meaning of the email I mean, sometimes, you know, you forgot not, and you were supposed to say do not, and you said do. Okay, then that's a problem. You've got to send a new one. But, you know, if there's just, you know, a misspelling or something, okay, yeah, you kind of blew that. There's definitely a typo. Does that discount the entire relationship I have with this person or the fact that I wrote a book on this subject or something else? Can they see the perspective in it that I can? And the researchers, this is actually really challenging for me you know, you were talking about arrogance. Um, The humility researchers don't say that the antonym to humility is arrogance. The the, the humility researchers say the antonym for humility is being non-humble. Because I am the worst person ever. I had a typo in my email is just as out of proportion as I am the best person because there was not a typo in my email. If I'm not walking around, you know, nuking my own people, like, you know, Hussein or Assad or somebody, I am actually not the worst. So I can inflate my badness just as much as I can inflate my goodness. And that's why that accurate thing is so important. And what then we're really looking at is that context of the whole and getting that sense of perspective and then trusting in it that things are sort of, I guess, to your point about faith, that things are going to work out the way they're supposed to. Um, it, it's sort of the idea that I, I love the humility research. I think it's really challenging. And one of the interesting things is, you know, I, I have never met Michael Phelps, but if I walked up to Michael Phelps or Michael Jordan or someone, I said, oh, wow, you're the GOAT. I I don't know what he would say, but he might say thanks. The humility researchers would say that was humble. Mm. Because it's a recognition, we both have a recognition of his abilities and his strengths and the weaknesses in the context of the whole. Currently, he's of all time. Well, I don't know, right, Lockty might disagree, but... You know what I, but I mean, like, you don't have to say, oh, gee, I'm really not that Modest.
0: Dry. The modest, maybe the distinction well, of modesty.
1: And, and actually, they've done that. And what they found is the humility is what you think about yourself. Modesty is what you show other people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, and again, so the humble person tends not to brag because they don't need to, because they're not in that defensive, justifying themselves, proving they're awesome to you, because they know how they're doing on their own.
0: And plenty of fake humility people out there who say, Oh, you know, they're they're showing modesty, but inside they actually don't believe right. that. And right. those people come off as inauthentic and mm-hmm. look like jackasses because you're like, Absolutely. Oh, I know that you don't think that and mm-hmm. I can see through you and you're you're full of shit. Um, yeah. and
1: modesty and, is you know, false modesty. Definitely, people do. They they identify it very quickly.
0: Especially leaders that do that, it's Mm -hmm. it's really problematic in their organizations.
1: Yeah, Yeah. but a humble leader is really empowering, and that was actually interesting. They had, um, there there was it was an open question if the arrogant leader was more effective than the humble leader, and that they found actually that the humble leader is better because the humble leader says, these are my strengths. I'm working on my weaknesses. Call me on them if you want. But you see how hard I'm working on mine? I expect you to work hard on yours. And so it's an empowering situation, whereas the arrogant leader tends to put everybody on their defensive, right? Because if you tell an arrogant leader something, yeah, I already know that. Why did you waste my time?
0: But it does depend. There's also research that shows that humility can go too far. And there is a time when a leader has to make tough decisions and Mm -hmm. the team is looking for that leader to actually give them something and when the leader goes to humility in that point it can backfire um there's there's cool research on on that as well
1: yeah i don't think it's so much the humility backfire part it's that the the humble leader says i ask i we have opinions i need your experience i need your insight no it's go time i'm going to make the decisions but once this is over, this game, this period, then we're going to have an after-action meeting. We're going to talk about this. I'm going to share the credit for all of the stuff we did to belong. But in this period of time, I need to make the decisions. And the and the team who's following the humble leader accepts that because there's enough trust that they know that they will switch back to the other side. The arrogant leader doesn't have that flexibility because the arrogant leader always says, I'm always right. And if the arrogant leader sometime when, you know, when things start getting really hard and things start hitting the fans and then, well, what do you think? You know, I really value your opinion. Everybody's on high alert, right? Some, this is not right. So the humility, the humble leader actually has the ability to let go and take control as the situation warrants, whereas the more arrogant leader sort of has to have that high level of control throughout because otherwise they're actually communicating that I'm, I'm not the person that you trusted and that you need me to be.
0: You'll, you'll probably shred my, my chapter on humble and arrogant, but <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's cool. Like I'm I, like, I'm, I'm ready for that. But my <laughs> argument is that most leaders spend most of their time in preparation mode. And most of their time is mm-hmm. in humble preparation, gathering information, gathering data, trying to learn, trying to grow, trying to figure things out. But the times when they do have to execute, mm-hmm. that's when they have to step into arrogance and sometimes make decisions that the world or their company is saying that's not right. That's wrong. And they're saying, but based on everything that I know, this is what I believe is right. And I believe I'm the right person to make this decision. And to your point, whether it's the military or a sports team or firefighters, they all have this after action reflection plan where they have to step Mm -hmm. back into humility. And so I guess what I argue as it relates to leadership is that leadership is a lot about preparation and there comes a point where, when you have to make tough decisions, sometimes you have this exaggerated sense that you're the right person for the job, and mm-hmm. th- that's where we need to step into the arrogance. So it'll be a, uh, it'll be interesting for that you.
1: Makes, that, to, make, yeah. that makes sense. That doesn't. That doesn't seem inconsistent with Brad Owens or other people's research. It's, or it's more, you know, about again that that shift and that the situation's warranted as opposed to by ego. I think
0: the mistake we make is to say that person's humble and that person's arrogant. And we all have humility inside of us. We all have arrogance inside of us. And the key is to be aware of when we need each. So my book is essentially about when, and not Dan Pink's when of timing, (laughs) which is cool and awesome. But when that book came out, I was like, oh man, like he's going to hit on this. To me, the it depends piece, it, like we don't give enough color to and context to it. like, wait, it depends when, like I've heard you talk about being angry about certain things. Like mm-hmm. anger necessarily bad. We need Mm -hmm. to leverage anger at times. Anxiety, we even talked about throughout this conversation. Mm -hmm. Anxiety isn't all bad. It absolutely can be debilitating, crippling, paralyzing, and a disorder for people. So I'm not minimizing anxiety. But if I have a couple drinks at the bar, anxiety helps me to decide, you know what, I don't need to drive home right now. I need to go get an Uber. Like anxiety is what allows me to go to the doctor when I'm in pain. There are plenty of men and I'm one of them who it's like, Oh, I don't need to go to the doctor. I'll be okay. It's like, well, no, dude, like go to the doctor and go get checked out. Like there's value in, in having that. So anyway, that's how I see the world is. I love polarity. I love, and you even mentioned, and when it came to nature and nurture, Mm -hmm. And I agree. I think, we often like things to be in a pretty box. And the reality is it depends when we need to step into one thing and we need to step into another thing. For my book, I decided to focus on preparation and performance. To be honest, I think it could broaden even wider to that, wider than that, because there's more than just a preparation and performance, but there had to be some conviction on something (laughs) to write write the book out.
1: Well, when you're, um, I'm a lawyer, and um you know one of the first things they teach you in law school is the answer is always it depends there, there's no right or wrong answer it, it's always it depends so i i can never disagree with someone who says the answer is it depends
0: so ashley why become a lawyer you've talked about theater you know singing being a passion uh mm-hmm. you love to write uh, screenwriting what drew you to law um and I'll, I'll 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 double stack the questions, which I know is annoying. Why not be a psychologist? I mean, you're so interested in human experience, and so I guess the curiosity would be why become a lawyer and why not go down a different path?
1: Who? Um, what do I want to be when I grow up? It's not an easy question. See, I the law thing is stupider than I think you will think it is. Um, My undergrad degree actually was in screenwriting and I was working in the Clinton administration. Yes, I'm that old. And people were like, you have a degree in movies? (laughs) What?
0: I think people would be like, you worked in the Clinton administration, but yeah, you think that that's where their focus is going to be. No,
1: no. The people who I was working with in the Clinton administration, Uh, they would say that. You've got a degree in movies. (laughs) How did you end Uh, up
0: here? Yeah, I got it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what what exactly can you do for us? Um, So I ended up going to, and everyone's like, oh, you should get a master's in public administration or public policy. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not interested in that at all. Um, I didn't want to do it myself. I couldn't, yeah, that was a terrible fit. And so I ended up going to law school at night, um, while I was serving the Clinton administration. And, you know, I'm, as we've said many times, I'm a geek. The idea of, you know, the opportunity to learn is never something that I would pass up if I had the time and the resources to do it. So, yes, I was going, I went to Georgetown Law School at night. And and I never really intended on practicing full time. I did. I was a litigator for a couple of years, but it was more about the background in terms of understanding how government law work on on the sort of governmental perspective, but you know, even a contract or or you know, interpersonal relationships. Yeah, so I hadn't. I never planned on actually being a lawyer. I was one, and I am one, but I, I didn't ever. Plan
0: Why not on. psychology? When when did you become really interested in researching sort of the human uh, experience?
1: Um, well, again, I've always been interested in learning. I, I the that I think was sort of an evolution. I was doing. I actually, my friend Poe Bronson was working on a book called Why Do I Love These People? And I was doing background research for him and we're like, well, that's really cool. So we ended up doing a online companion to that book that we wrote together, which really focused on demography and sociology. And, you know, so we just sort of branched out and in retrospect, I see a clear line through all of this that no one else sees, but it makes sense to me, which is, you know, I wanna know how people tick. And that's, you know, there are ways to look at that from a lot of different disciplines and different, you know, whether it's a, a law perspective in terms of contracts or legal requirements, or does the legal requirement fulfill it? Or you know, the intent to do a crime? And when do I care about your intent? And when do I not care about your intent? And the fact that you just simply did it and I don't care why you were you did something bad. I'm gonna throw you into boki. Um you know, to more of sort of the psychological perspective. But, you know, if you look at, if, if you're um, crazy enough to read the bibliographies of my books, um, they're not strictly psychology. Either. And even then it's psychology, but it's educational psychology and social psychology and personal psychology um, and some neuroscience and some economics and and, and that's when I get really excited is that sort of cross-disciplinary approach because that sort of gives legitimacy to me, and a new set of legitimacy where four different people in completely unrelated fields with completely different technologies, someone did an experiment with six kids in a lab, someone interviewed a thousand people, someone did an, you know, an fMRI experience experiment, and they all came up with the same conclusion. That's when you really start seeing something that's exciting and something that seems real to me in a way that, you know, you're not just going to have someone say, I failed to replicate that experiment five minutes later because I did it with a different sample. And maybe, maybe I did some P hacking on my statistics and maybe I didn't. Uh, But when you have that sort of consistency of themes across spheres, that that's when I get really excited.
0: All right, so I'll send you back to what you love to talk about, and you mentioned that you love to talk about how people tick and why mm-hmm. why why they tick. So give us the challenge versus threat concept, Yay. which which I I love. I just did a talk with George Washington University Athletics around resilience, and we mm-hmm. talked about challenge and threat. And mm-hmm. um, I think for the time we're in right now, um, once somebody has safety and security and health and all of the sort of bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs things, right? Like once those things are taken care of, and I I think it's important to preface that because you even mentioned earlier, like there's these people during COVID that are like, if you're not learning 10 new things, you're doing it wrong. And I'm like, F you, like, you don't know what someone's going through right now. They might've lost their job. They might've lost their spouse. They might've had somebody die of cancer. They might like there's, you just don't know what someone's going through during COVID. They might be depressed. Um, so once we sort of baseline and, and, and state that piece, I, I think mm-hmm. challenge and threat are a really important framework on how we're approaching this and, and even beyond this, just as we approach life. So, um, give us some context into what you mean as, as you've dropped it three or four times. I know, I'm so sorry, everyone. It.
1: <laughs> it's awful. I don't normally do that. Um, um, you know, lawyer by training, I define terms and move on. Um. So it's pretty simple. A, a challenge is when you have the skills, knowledge, research, resources and ability to succeed. And again, I, I like text lists so that I can apply this in myself. So I skills, knowledge, resources, and ability to succeed. And, and that doesn't mean it's a slam dunk. It just think means that you know by and large, things being what they should be, I should prevail in this particular context. And a threat state, you don't have the skills, resources, knowledge, or ability to succeed. And the only question is how badly is this gonna go? And that's seen, and we've all had those moments, but what's fascinating in the challenge research, and especially where um, Wendy Berry-Mendez, um, Professor Blaskovitz, a bunch of other people Um, have looked at sort of how the, there's a biophysiological response to these different thoughts. So in a challenged state, you get a testosterone boost, less cortisol, your blood vessels, the muscles that line your blood vessels actually cause your blood vessels to expand, so you get increased blood circulation, so your um, heart rate and your circulation is improving, but your actual heart rate itself isn't actually like skyrocketing. Um, You get more adrenaline versus noradrenaline. In a threat state, you know, an evolutionary perspective, you can think about, you know, the challenge state was, you know, running after the antelope with your tribe trying to get dinner and even the platelets there's a different response. So if you scratch, you get scratched as you're chasing after the antelope, you're not going to bleed out because you're actually, your platelets are actually stopping the blood from flowing. But in a threat state, um, so this is, you know, when you're being chased by the cyber tooth tiger, um, you're, you get more noradrenaline, adrenaline, more cortisol, not testosterone, and your blood ma- your blood vessels now, instead of expand, actually tighten. And this is because if the tiger caught you and bit you on your foot that you hopefully were gonna bleed not bleed out before you made it to the cave. And if you've ever had an experience where you were really nervous about something and suddenly you felt your heart racing and then all of a sudden you heard bum boom bum boom bum, bum in your ear, that was the threat state. And what's interesting about that, so my sort of mental image when you can like sort of dramatically see the difference and not the evolutionary contact is a blowout football game, right? Because if you see the, the team who are winning, uh, you know, it's late in the third quarter and they're jumping up and down and their arms are windmilling and they're screaming at the crowd, pretend there's a crowd. And <laughs> <laughs> they're screaming at the crowd and they're, you know, they're jumping up and down and cheering more than the cheerleaders. And they have more energy in the fourth quarter than they did at the beginning. Now, on the opposite side of the field, those guys are panting, they're holding their chest, they're holding their knees, some of them are hobbled over. It's not an issue of strength and conditioning. They will be just fine next week. It's that at that moment, their body is trying to figure out how to get out of this alive. So, if we go back to that checklist skills, resource, knowledge, and ability to succeed, if you go into an experience, Like you were asking, you know, about a competition or I'm having to give a speech or something like that. Okay. Do I have the knowledge, skills, resources, and ability to succeed? If I don't, and if I'm starting to get anxious, then which of those things am I missing? You know, once I was giving, once I was preparing for an event and all of a sudden I was like, yeah, I think I'm doing really well. This is good. And I'd forgotten that I, had po- that I had 200 pages of research that I'd printed out and put in a bag that I was gonna go read in a coffee shop. So I was going through my notes and all of a sudden I saw this bag of unread research and my heart just, oh my God, my, I was just, I was almost panting. I was just, oh my God, I'm not as prepared for the speech as I thought I was. I hadn't. I don't have the knowledge. So stopped everything and I had to read my 200 pages. You know, sometimes it maybe an athlete realizes that they're missing their lucky socks. so they're missing the resource. Or more likely, you know, they forgot their water or like that. But, but it was something that they think isn't a necessary skill. And so if you get anxious about something a coming or a coming performance, excuse me, like you were saying, then you go through that list. What is it that I feel like I'm missing that is making me say, I'm not likely to succeed? Now, that works if you're not 10 minutes out or five minutes out, right? But sometimes you're like, okay, I realized I don't have the skills to succeed because this team's just better than me. Um, I'm completely outclassed. Sometimes that does happen, right? or um or you just feel you're off your game you know some you know once you know you you might be sick or who knows or you're distracted because a family thing who knows right so you're just like wow this is not good i am in a threat state okay well change the goal to something you think you can succeed at right so the olympian going into the olympics thinking i'm gonna go home as you know the with the world record and i'm gonna have more medals since mark spitz and um and everybody okay now wait i'm just gonna get i'm gonna get through this race we'll worry about the next one right so you change your goal not to something that's so easy you're gonna underperform because now you don't. Now it's a cakewalk, and you don't need to get there, right? The the Quindle Central just show up. That's not going to work. It's something there still has to be enough that you effort and effort. But now you're back to that. All things equal, I think I should succeed at this goal.
0: It, it it's actually it's interesting in sports because um, I've had Torrey Smith on the podcast who played for the Baltimore Ravens for a number of years, had a successful NFL career. He played in a Sunday Night Football game and the night before his brother died. And it was one of the best games he had in his career. And so I talked to Tori about it. And I think there might be something between challenge and threat, which is uh, presence and just clarity and uh, a freedom feeling. Um, Because golfers often, I've worked with a ton of golfers over the years. They talk about a lot of their best rounds occur when they're sick. And what happens is they don't get into the outcome and focusing so much on the expectations of the outcome. Instead, they just play one shot at a time mm-hmm. and they just they just play and they just let it go and have like a free feeling. And when I talked to Tori, that was almost was like he hadn't slept. Everything you would think would lead to a bad performance would be that. And even when I work with athletes, you, you mentioned something earlier about, you know, am I sick or am I... Like, you, I forgot exactly. But
1: was down, yeah. Down. Like, yeah. in
0: sports, they often say, are you injured or are you hurt? Because, right. like, you can play when you're hurt, but if you're injured, you really shouldn't play. I think about athletes like Isaiah Thomas, who played for the Pistons, who scored 20-plus points in a playoff game on a sprained ankle. A Tiger mm-hmm. Woods, one with a knee, like, completely messed up. And, like, one of the things we talk about, in sports is can you give 100% of whatever you've got? So even if you're at 70 or 80%, what does 100% of that look like? And I think one of the things that happens, as I said, is a shift of expectations. So rather than a focus on the outcome and what they have to do, it's more along the lines of like, all right, let's just keep this simple. And then it allows their talent and what they've trained themselves to do to just come out. Um, And so those are just some other thoughts as I'm listening to you talk that are percolating in my mind.
1: Like two directions to go with that. Uh the first one is so I hadn't gotten to my last goal.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I interrupted you.
1: No worries. No worries. Um, I love what you're saying. But so I'm like, okay, so you're trying to reset the goal and you can't figure it out. Right? Just can't. Sometimes the competition is so short that you don't even have an option, right? There isn't not every sport has a second half break where you can sort of recalibrate and figure out a new game plan. So In those moments, we're going back to growth mindset. The goal is to learn from it. That's it, can you learn from this? Can you be better on the other side than you were when you started? So that I think leads into your sort of your idea about presence and stuff like that. I'm just gonna learn from this experience. I'm gonna do my best and I'm gonna take from it what I can but I'm not going to worry about the gold medal or the best performance ever. I'm just, you know, in the, I'm going to get through this, but in a, in a positive way, as opposed to a suffering way. And that's how I'm connecting. That's why I, to me, growth mindset and challenge and humility all in some ways end up being the same because the right answer is always, how am I going to learn from this? How am I going to improve? because we are as humans supposed to improve right that's our goal
0: and compete though like the idea of leaving everything out there and um doing the best i can with what i've got Mm -hmm. so there to me there's learning but if we don't ever put ourselves out there and make ourselves vulnerable and compete then we don't get to truly learn because we didn't even see what we were potentially capable of, and we didn't. Right.
1: Well, we didn't, I said, so, yeah. I yeah. mean, I was saying that at the beginning that that's the value of competition, right? Is that it's you're pushing yourself and your ability, you're seeing what's possible, you're seeing what others can do that you may or may not be able to do, and how are you going to respond to that? So, to me, the you know that that's the the process of the competition itself, and then you know, that mindset and going into it in that I'm going to learn from this. And the reason why that's important is because even you're saying, well, I'm going to get everything I got to it. That still might be scary. It still may be a threat state because you still may be thinking, but whatever I've got is still not enough. Right, I mean that's just the hard truth. I will do everything I possibly can, but I'm still gonna get creamed.
0: Which is why a but lot of people the, don't. Which is why a lot of people don't actually give everything they got because it's easier to play it safe. It's easier to not mm-hmm. make themselves vulnerable and fail, and then have no other options. Um, and that's why I think you see, absolutely the growth. So, the growth, then the compete, then the growth again. It's it's like what I'm hearing is like, I go into it thinking, all right, I'm gonna grow, I'm gonna learn. But then I'm I, when I'm in it, I'm competing, I'm doing everything I can, and then after it, I recalibrate, reflect, uh, get mm-hmm. feedback, and then I grow and learn again. And that to me is a cycle.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's either or. I think you can grow during. It just then it's just gonna depend on the specific thing you're doing. But, but again, the goal is the motivation to keep engaged. If you don't think you're going to, you know, succeed and prevail, you're not going to be able to continue to motivate and continue to put yourself on the line because you're thinking there's no point. And then you're going to start holding back. But if I keep reminding myself of the reason I'm here is to learn, well, hopefully, I mean, how many times have I said, I'm a geek and I love to learn? if I have an opportunity to learn something, even if I do really badly, I should actually think this is fun because I'm learning from it and I love to learn. I will be a better person on the other end because I have learned from this experience. So so that's what I was saying in sort of that value and then that goes to the growth mindset that I can learn, I can be better. And it also goes to that sense of humility, which is I'm taking stock of my strengths and I'm building on my weaknesses. It's not an indictment. It's just saying, okay, I understand this is going to be hard, but I how do I improve on that? And so to me, there's sort of this kind of conceptual through line, which I find really exciting.
0: When we go to the Nats game, we're going to have even more conversations around this. <laughs> and 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 we're coming up on two hours, and I am super grateful. And <laughs> so
1: sorry. <laughs> oh,
0: this is awesome. I, I'm 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 laughing inside because getting Ashley on the podcast was it required some resilience and perseverance. Like I had to keep, stay with it, try to find an in, try to, and I'm used to that. I started my career in sales. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't take it personally.
1: That's not true. You asked me and I said, yes, it was the scheduling that was a little bit tough. (laughs) But that's what most,
0: that's most of my guests. That's, that's, that's the issue. And, and, and I, it's, it's honestly, it's all good. Um, But I did not expect to have then a two hour window with her full attention. And I'm super grateful for that. And we will go to a baseball game when we are allowed and we will talk about learning when you are performing compared to maybe a different focus. And that'll be lots of fun. The last thing that I want to, I want to maybe debate with you. Okay. uh, No, maybe in a previous life, I should have gone to law school. I think I would have failed and not been able to have the attention to detail that you need to go to law school. I've worked with lawyers before. They're fun to work with. Um, Although a lot of lawyers don't like to be coached, which is a whole nother conversation for another day. Yeah. Um, (laughs) We could talk about that at the baseball game as well. Sure. So uh, let's talk about trophies. And okay. you're, you've been- oh, there.
1: that's another two
0: hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. And we might we have to talk about that at the baseball we'll be game too.
1: We'll be short, okay.
0: We'll be short with it. But you've been we'll beating be the drum on like, hey, everybody gets a trophy, F that. Like,
1: I hate them. You yes.
0: hate that. All right, mm-hmm. here's the deal. I guess I am classified as a millennial. I'm 36 years old. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, we all got trophies. We got participation trophies. There's no question. None of us gave a shit about the participation trophies. We we got them, they're these little dinky trophies. We put them somewhere in our closet. But the big ones, when we won the championship, Those were the ones we cared about. And I hear the argument against participation trophies, and I understand where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of overblown because show me a kid that really gets the participation trophy is like, I got a trophy. There's no kids that are like really excited about the participation trophy. Now, should we do it? Should we not? Like, I think it's open for debate, but I get concerned about people thinking that this the generation of millennials are not competitive and they're not this and they're not that. And we hear it in, um, in the basketball world, they say AAU basketball, for example, they just play, they just play, they play, they don't care about losing. And I'm saying to these people, are you kidding? Go watch the NBA playoffs. These dudes are making millions of dollars and they are going at it right now in a bubble, uh, you know, away from their family, away from their friends, whoever it might be. And, And so it sounds like you're still in the I hate participation trophy. Hate you hate them. So so disagree with me on this front.
1: Easy. You your you your presumption was that or you said that it made the millennials less competitive or could make them less competitive. That is not my presumption at all. And that's not where the science is. The science says that constantly overpraising and over rewarding makes you more competitive, more perfectionist, and not in a productive way because we know people who are competitive. I'm competitive, but I also, well, I have friends who can tell me, hey, knock it off if I'm doing something. But there are some people who will compete with the same ferocity over a job interview and a parking space at the mall. And that's when we have a problem, when the people are only, I have to win. I have to be the winner every single time, and that's literally what the message of a participation trophy is. Nothing is worth your doing unless you get public acclaim. And there is longitudinal generational studies that Gene Twenge has done at um, San Diego State, and we don't actually. We um, there was a lot of labeling, you know, and concern. There was increases um, in with narcissism, that doesn't seem to be paying off. What does seem to be paying off is perfectionism with corresponding anxiety and depression. You can't live up to your rep. You just can't live up to your rep. And that actually, that I have to be the winner. I have to be the best. I'm entitled to winning because it's my, because simply who I am it's not worth something to, you know, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, it's not worth just going to play soccer because you want to have fun with your friends. No, you need a trophy. It's, you know, it's the that. that and no, you should just do it because it's fun. Extrinsic and, and Extrinsic
0: motivation and intrinsic motivation is really what you're hitting on there.
1: And the extrinsic motivation kills, then we're going to go right back to growth mindset because you were never allowed to do something and suck at it. You had to get a trophy, even when you did suck. We pretended you succeeded. And that's the concern, is not that it makes them less competitive, but more competitive or in that fixed mindset, like I had said before, a mistake is catastrophic. Once I realize I don't get the trophy, I quit. So it becomes a more binary scenario. I have the world is divided in winners and losers and I have to be a winner in everything I do. And, and so that that's the concern. We want people to know that it is okay to make a mistake. We want them to know you don't have to be celebrated and wonderful for every single thing you do. You can do it because you like it. You can do it because it's fun and you still suck, but you enjoy it. Fine, no problem, cool, do that. Um, so, it and research has also shown, even in real time, you know, a lot of times, you know, I've heard the, oh, well, they didn't matter. The argument that the best justification for a practice is that you don't think it hurt any is not justification for doing it, right? Um, it It's It's not, because the intent was not to not hurt you, it was to actually motivate you. And if the goal of participation trophies is to motivate you in a positive way, then we should actually find out if that's true. And if the best argument in a $3 billion industry a year people can give is that the trophies, which no one wants, can't be recycled, can't be given, no thrift store wants it, is it ain't gonna hurt anything except for have a lot more plastic and landfills i'm gonna say why don't we just don't give all of you a soccer ball and a pizza party and say come back next season it's so yeah it's overpraising. it's increase it's increasing that ability and innate you know success and what we really want to do is give kids the time to learn and grow because ultimately that's what we want and if you think again about the the novice is trying to figure out if i'm good at something if this is worth my time the elite is really competing against themselves right i mean they have a they have a specific competition or something in mind in terms of what they want but the medal is you know a, a representation of that but a lot of times it's just a gateway to another competition a few years ago i was fortunate enough to go to the um, team usa swimming national championships and Ryan Lochte, Michael Phelps, um, Cullen, all of them walked around and they gave away their national medals to people in the audience. And I mean, it wasn't even like a friend. They were just literally throwing them into the stands with petty bears because the only point, they didn't need the medal. They'd already been national champions for a billion times. It wasn't their first. The reason they went to this was because they were trying to qualify for subsequent uh, races and to be on Team USA. And they knew that that medal would mean something to the kid in the stands. And at that point they needed the record. So it's, it's a, and I also think, you know, all, okay. Carol, what taught me this? Would you do the same in praise that you think is appropriate in praise as punishment? Would you punish every child if half of the kids didn't even try and half of the kids just sat there and one kid worked really hard? Would you punish everyone the same as you praise everyone the same? Would you, if you go to a kid and you'd say, you know, they, you walk in a house and the, there's a vase broken and a ball through a window. I told you not to throw the ball in the house. And no one would say you're a terrible child so you didn't do a good thing but they wouldn't say you were a terrible child as a good response but if that same kid came home from school presuming they got to actually go to school and they came home from school and they said look mommy i made a vase in art class (gasps) oh that is such a you are a wonderful child no no you're not wonderful you made a vase so it's that inflating of perspective and if you if you think about it from the opposite, you often see how we, we take the praise, we're such a praise-focused insane culture that we don't even see it. But if you flip it around to what would be the criticism version or the punishment version, then you can start seeing how really extreme these things are and how they might really have different impacts. And I've had kids, one more thing, who, genuinely wanted to do well on more than one occasion different people said they did not know each other that they thought they were going to win they lost the championship they got from to patient trophies and the kids threw them in garbage pails and set them on fire <laughs> so the kids who really want to care hate them oh, so yeah. that is my the quick diatribe on why i hate everybody. <laughs> <that's> true.
0: <laughs> so Two Thank thoughts. you for
1: coming to my Levinson talk.
0: <laughs> two, two, two thoughts from me. One is Ashley won Brian zero. So for those, <laughs> you score at home. And then two, I'm glad I didn't go to law school with you. It wouldn't have been a fun experience. Not that I know you went to Georgetown, not that Georgetown hey. was going to be accepting Brian Levinson to law school, even if he wanted to go, but that's a story for another day. Look, I, I want to wind down here. And, and it's interesting because you know, I literally just got my book, like the hard cover of my book. I spent 4 years. Yeah, I spent 4 Yay. years spent 4 years writing that damn thing, you know, poured my heart and soul into it. Hired a writing coach to help me with the process cuz I I really needed someone to help me with it and collaborate with me on it. As I'm hearing you talk, like the moment I got the book in my hand, it was it's just a book. It's like a bunch of papers and it's a thing, but like the joy that I have and the responses that I'm getting from people and the, the idea that I can maybe do some good with the book that is giving me a ton of fulfillment. And, and while I didn't always love the process of it, I am happy I went through it and I learned a lot and I grew a lot. So um, I think what you're talking about resonates with me and what I'm, where I'm at right now. And I know you've written a couple books and I'm sure when you got that book, you're like, eh, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's like a trophy. It's, am I wrong about that? Is that change?
1: It is weird, because you think it's going to be so exciting, and it is so exciting, but then somehow it's a little anticlimactic, like, what what do you do? And... um,
0: It was in a uh, box. Like, it was in a box. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, it. you know, and and, and it sounds terrible, because there are people who would, you know, you know, kill to write a book, and, and it doesn't, and I don't mean it to be an ungrateful thing, but it's a process, and it takes so long that suddenly when you get the final book, it's a little bit empty because you're like but I've been living with this now is it done am I over do I just now what and you kind of then have to figure out how to re-engage with the book reading audience in this whole other way Um, which then I think actually can be really fun and exciting but it it, it is a little weird I mean first you're like oh my god it's a real thing this is really exciting and then you're like now what so that that's the part where you know I, I feel like it's a little hmm well, I'll
0: call you as I'm going through my ups and downs with it, but it has been exciting because oh, I've been, I've been doing a lot of podcasts and going on people and talking about the book. And it's actually like really exciting. I thought yeah, it wouldn't be really
1: fun. It's no, really, really fun. Great. Cause it's like, yeah. Oh, I
0: learned all this stuff. Let me go share it. And mm-hmm. uh, it's been fun anyway. Um, First of all, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. Um, and hopefully, as I said, we can go to a baseball game and not and even more. Um, if people want to know more about what you're up to, uh, social media, website, I know mm-hmm. you have all that stuff. We'll certainly mm-hmm. put in the show notes, but I want to give you a megaphone to promote that, promote the books and anything else that you, you know, the tutoring center, anything that you're passionate about. I just want to give you a platform, a megaphone to just shout it out from, from the hilltops.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um yeah i so i i have written two books so those are out there so if anybody would the first book is called nurture shock if you've heard of it and it's sort of the science of child development and it's not a parenting advice book it's really looking at issues that all of us relate to but from a kid perspective from a scientific kid perspective like motivation and growth mindset and all that and um, top dog is the science of competition and how competition is something Not that you are innately a top dog or not, but how to use competition and competitive environments to be your best. Um, And I do have a website and I've been tweeting and I'm starting to work on a new book. So stand by for that and hopefully we'll start talking about that soon.
0: Awesome. <laughs> Website is ashleymerriman.com. Easy to yep. find uh, handles, social media, easy to find Ashley yep. Merriman. So make sure you follow her, check out her work and definitely buy the books. Highly recommend them. Uh, I'm at Brian Levinson and the my new book's called Shift Your Mind. So if you want to get that and Ashley can tell you about all the things that are wrong with it, I'm sure she's happy to, <laughs> sounds happy to tell I'm you. It like, great. I'm um, looking
1: forward to reading <laughs> it. You sent it to me. I just I yeah. haven't gotten
0: it yet. <laughs> um, so thanks so much for coming on the podcast and looking forward to chatting with you. again. again. Again, sometime soon.
1: Cracks on the book. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. There is no such thing as as a mistake. A mistake is I can do this or not. So things become very high stakes when you're afraid of mistakes. Because again, everything is a proof. Oh, well, I wasn't really good at this all along. So people with fixed mindsets tend to be uh, more willing to give up, more perfectionistic, more um, not able to be adaptable or agile because they can't change because they were told that their success is based on this finite skill that they have or they don't. So it shouldn't change over time. It should be consistent. And any variation is is an indictment, again, that they really weren't supposed to be there all along.